If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Horse welfare and safety are of utmost importance where humans have any interaction with horses. Within the courses at International Horse College, we only utilise methods that promote safe and humane ways of interaction between horses and humans. We only support safe methods of educating riders, handlers and trainers about horse welfare. Internationalhorsecollege.com Registered Training Organisation 31352 Our guest today is Jill Sinclair. Jill's got a background in dressage, show jumping and eventing, but she's now a dressage specialist, coach and coach educator. She's also an FEI eventing, three four-star judge and a judge educator. How are you, Jill? Really well, thank you. Good, good. Jill, we normally start off with a favourite quote. Have you got one for us today? Good question. Um, Do unto others as they do to you. Okay, and obviously you feel fairly strongly about that one, just sort of going on our previous conversations. Was there a time that you remember hearing this quote? I think I was brought up to believe that if you were nice to someone, it's pretty hard for them to be horrible back. Yep. Uh, So as a small child, my parents instilled that into me. doesn't always work, I've got to (laughs) say, but it's a good philosophy. Okay, okay. And do you teach your students much the same thing? How does that work out now? For you to inspire others with it? Well, I encourage people who I teach as coaches not to criticise any other coaches or any other officials, but to respect them and that we all make mistakes. And if we make mistakes, we will learn from them and that we're really responsible for helping each other to abide by all the rules, to understand the processes that are meant to be followed through and basically to give the rider the benefit of the doubt if you're not sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think as a rider, it's very easy to criticise judges, particularly at a lower level. You know, oh, that judge doesn't like my dressage and I'm never going to get anywhere with that judge and everything. But particularly at the lower level, the judges need to learn how to judge. And if they don't do it at that low level, they're never ever going to get the opportunity to keep improving the sport. And it's the judges and the officials that are volunteering their time. They're not out there, you know, getting all the star qualities riding their horse. They're really, really valuable within the sport. No. Yeah. No. And look, I think it's very difficult for new judges because they're, Honestly, trying the best they can. Yes. They, they have no ulterior motives. They're just trying to stick to the German training scale. And if they're a little bit inconsistent due, due to their lack of experience, well, that can only improve. And it also improves by having really good mentors and to sit in with good judges or experienced judges and to learn to train your eye as to what is a seven, what is mm. a, a nine, what is a five, and the difference between a five and a four, which is really important. Yes, yes, yes. All right, now thinking about your first memories with horses, what are they? How did you start with horses? I used to look out of my bedroom window when I was a very small child and watch the milkman's horse go past <laughs> and be amazed how it just kept going while the milkman delivered the bottled milk to everybody's house. So that was the intriguing bit. And then I think that 
My dad, his love of horses influenced me greatly. And I used to go up to a farm that it was owned by a friend of his and sit on unbroken ponies and put the bridle on and go. <laughs> That's what I thought breaking in was. Whoops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny. I, I talk to a lot of people and, and sometimes the ways that they learn to ride and their introduction to horses and riding, it's so dangerous. It's almost like a horror story, but they've lived through it and um, yeah, kept going. And I think, too, once you develop some knowledge, you really then appreciate that parents need a lot of knowledge in mm. order to facilitate their children's enjoyment of horses. I mean, I was on an unbroken three-year-old riding an hour to pony club on a pony that bucked and shied and I was lucky to get there in one piece. Yep. And then every time everybody cantered, I'd get bucked off <laughs> and the instructor would say, well done, Jill, 10 bucks this time. Good girl. <laughs> and my mum did a first aid course because I'd land winded on the ground then just get back on because you had to fall off 14 times before you could call yourself a rider. And eventually that pony became a wonderful pony, but it just, it needed training and so did I. Mm, mm. And good on you for keep going because a lot of kids would have stopped, given up and just, you know, got too much of a fright and just refused to get back on. So maybe the parents, but just the general public needs to be educated on how to learn to ride. I think so. And also to say to kids, look, you know, I really admire your courage. Mm. I really, to give them lots of positive instead of saying this is a dreadful pony and don't get on it anymore, to say to them, you know, you are going to become such a good rider because you sat those bucks. And then to put them in a safer situation where they're not all cantering with the other horses and that the child can restore their confidence. Yes, yes. And I think, you know, particularly those early years, confidence is so important. Jill, that, that's a long way going from um, getting bucked off and sitting to 10 bucks or you know, going to pony club to then having a career with horses. Now, did you have horses all the way through? What did you do from when you left school? Do you want to tell us about that? Well, I went to pony club from the age of 12 till I was 21. And that involved going eventing a lot. And my father built me a single float so that we could go eventing. Uh, he was amazing. He just really tried to help me as much as he could. I didn't have a wealthy family. I used to wear secondhand boots and secondhand jackets and secondhand jodhpurs. But I was just thrilled to have anything. And I admired lots of riders who were much better than I was and aspired to become like them. And I met Jeff, my husband, when I was 16, and we went eventing together later on when we were about 19. And I had a lovely group of friends. that In our club at Templestowe Pony Club, there were 100 girls and three guys. So that's why Jeff joined. He thought it might be a good place to find a girlfriend. <laughs> but look, we had a great time, and it was competitive for all of us, very challenging for all of us. And we had some great instructors who encouraged us, like Murray Wheatley and June James and various people. But in the early lessons, people like Nancy Keane, um, Mrs. Burns, Wendy Mapleston, a whole lot of people who were consistent in their love of children and horses, which I'm sure rubbed off to us all. And then after Pony Club, Jeff and I were married at 21. And we couldn't afford to own horses anymore, even though I'd been given to Arab youngsters, nine-month-old youngsters, as a wedding present from some friends in South Australia who I used to go over and work their horses for them just for fun. 
And so we sold all our horses and we bought a block of land that was like mountain goat territory and we kept one of Jeff's horses and I used to keep it fit going down Kangaroo Ground Road in all the traffic <laughs> and Jeff would have entered. And then we realised this was crazy. This was – the horse wouldn't move on the, on the paddock. It stood on the only flat space that there was and so we stopped riding. And then for a few years, probably three years, I was teaching at Greenwood High School in Bundura, and then we moved to Shepparton. And in Shepparton, I had a horse, and Jeff bought a horse to go hunting on, and I invented a little horse. And then we moved back to Melbourne and bought in the Yarra Valley a little 11-acre property, and I decided to take up dressage seriously. And I bought a horse that was an eventer and I rode him eventing for a while and tried to improve my dressage as well, joined Yarra Valley Dressage Club. And then I got pregnant with my first child and after I'd had him, I decided to jump again and do hunter's plates and go eventing. And I said to Jeff, if I place at Avenal, I'll have another child. I placed and I had another child. So that was lucky for, you know, for, for the whole family and, and for me. And then with two small children, I found that trying to event, getting up at six in the morning, it was too hard. I'd be up through the night already with the children and it was just too exhausting. So I sold my eventer and then I bought myself a dressage horse and he was only four. And I think my son it was three weeks old and I found that I could compete on three rides a week I could be competitive at state level, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which which is pretty... You couldn't do it now. Yep. I mean, the standard now is so high, you could not do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that horse took me to the nationals at medium level. Okay. So uh, we, we had a wonderful experience uh, after Ninda Elijah and I. Then I went to Germany and I trained for a while because I really wanted to know what it took to be such a top rider. Mm-hmm. And I trained with George Theodorescu and Monica and Ingrid Theorescu, who's George's wife. Yep. And they put me on an 18-hand horse called Udon, who was a horse belonging to Beatrice Feria Salat from Spain. And he'd been a Spanish Olympic horse. And did he teach me a thing or two? <laughs> he was huge, big strides, very bouncy. I couldn't rise to the trot on him. I felt like a show jump jockey. I looked at all the other riders and thought, oh, my God do I need to improve? <laughs> so my stirrups were taken down three holes. I was in a saddle that didn't fit me, and we had a saddlery business at that stage. Jeff was very involved in horseland and weather beater. And I said, oh, this saddle doesn't fit me. And they said, so? <laughs> Get on with it. And then eventually Udon and I kicked together, and having watched in the mirror myself and all the other riders, after a month or so, Mrs. Theodoreski said to me, you no longer look out of place in the school. And George said to me, you have a talent for Passage and Piaf because that horse hasn't been able to do it that well in the past. So I learned a lot. It was fantastic. But I also learned that I didn't want to be a top rider mm-hmm. because I saw that the top riders have no children, have no permanent partner. They ride six days a week. They get up really early in the morning. They're so exhausted by two in the afternoon they need to sleep and then they go off and do things like study. Mm-hmm. And I wanted a more varied life. I wanted to keep my children, keep my husband and be involved in seeing theatre, seeing films, spending time with friends. I like a diverse life. 
because you've got to juggle your family and horses. What do you think the keys are then to juggling that family and horses? Well, I said to myself, do I want to be coming home from a competition at nine o'clock at night, looking at the four walls and saying, well, well done, Jill, and whichever horse I happen to be competing on. Isn't this wonderful that you did so well? And I thought, what an empty life that is. As much as I love my horses, I need people and I love my family. And it's a much richer life for someone like me to lead. In other words, I'm not ambitious enough to give up everything for the sport, which some people are able to do that and I can't, don't want to. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that do want to have a well-rounded life and may not want to go to the top. They still want to work with horses. What do you think the core skills or character traits are for people who still want to work in the horse industry? What do they need to do to be? For a start, you have to have an incredible love of horses Mm -hmm. to the point that you'll stay up all night with an injured horse or a sick horse or a mare foaling or whatever. But you also have to realise you've got to earn a living and so you've got to be careful when you enter into contracts with people that you're not just swapping work for accommodation, which seems to happen a lot and it shouldn't. You should be on an award wage and also go with your eyes open. Don't go and say, well, my previous instructor taught me ABC. You go with your eyes open and you listen and you try and be a sponge that absorbs information. Then you experiment with it and you find what works for you and what isn't working for you. And then from everybody that you work for, you will learn more and more and more until you're able to offer others many of the successful things that you have learned. Mm. Mm. I, I like particularly the sponge to absorb the information. You know, you will continue to learn if you've got that attitude. Yeah. I think you've got to be quite open-minded. I mean, having taught since I was 18, I find that some people say, well, so-and-so does it this way, and da-da-da-da-da, and I say, well, just give me the opportunity to help you with the knowledge that I have, Hmm. and if you find it doesn't work for you, well, then you can dismiss it, and you can do what works for you, but at the moment, you're in my lesson, and I want to help you, and I'm excited to teach, so let's just see how we go. Yep. Yeah. All right. Now, the people who've influenced you, you've sort of said a few people from Pony Club. Who who do you think's been influential in your career with horses, your knowledge with horses? Goodness me, I've had too many people to (laughs) tell you. I should say name one person, you know, if you say narrow it down to one person, Mm. the biggest influence. Um. Look, I think Malcolm Barnes Mm -hmm. taught me about the incredible, unyielding love of the horse. For example, I was competing on an FEI horse who was built the wrong way. He'd been evented, raced, he'd show jumped, he had a no top line, he was wide behind in the extended trot, but I fell in love with him because I felt sorry for him. And then Malcolm brought special hay for me at the national titles once, Mm -hmm. and I thought, What a kind man. And he would just say to me things like, well, Jill, we're just chipping away. Mm -hmm. And I've never forgotten that. And also he danced movements for me. And I had a dance background. So he'd show me flying changes by skipping across the arena. And that's how I teach people flying changes now. Mm -hmm. And I get them off their horses and they have to coordinate the same way as they would doing the changes. So I think Malcolm's had a huge impact on me and also that he's a humble man who has travelled the world 
on boats with horses, lunging them on board with high waves crashing around. He's competed for Australia. He's won Melbourne three-day event. He was successful in England, yeah, and a very kind soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he's not the most famous of the people who've influenced me, but I think he's the one with the most compassion for horses. Okay, and I think that's important too. He not only had the compassion for horses, he then allowed you to get the compassion for horses, but then you can also teach that to your students. Absolutely. That's true. And and I'll be forever grateful to him for that. All right. Now, if you've got a standout horse who's influenced you? Oh, I love the horse so much. <laughs> Goodness. In a way, Northern Gabriella was a favourite, not because she was so incredibly talented, but because I was teaching in Northern Territory. And I'd ridden a number of horses at the Northern Warmblood Stud. And uh, Marion Gilchrist and Jack were good friends of ours, and they came up to watch me ride. Anyway, there was one horse with a wonderful trot, but very spooky. And I was only allowed to ride in the round yards because the horses had just been broken in. Anyway, I said I needed to come back and ride them because I couldn't counter in the round yard. It was too small, and she had huge strides. So Jeff rang me when I was in Northern Territory and said, Guess what, Jill? I bought you a horse. And I said, what? He's never done this before. (laughs) And which one did you buy? And he said, the one with the big ears. And that was Gabby. Okay. And so she was not good looking. She had short legs. She was very broad in the chest and the backside and became more and more and more so as she grew up. And she ended up taking me to into one and she took me to the nationals. And state champs she did well at. She was a medium Victorian horse that went in the the Victorian team. And she ended up being a very kind soul Mm -hmm. who tried to please. But she wasn't the most talented. She just got over all her fear, which Mm -hmm. took a long time, (laughs) showing everywhere. But, yeah, I'd say she was the one that is a little bit of a standout from the others in that way. Okay. And taking her to the Nationals, riding it or riding it into one, was that your proudest moment, do you think? Oh, no, not at all. My proudest moment would have been I sold my best horse to one of my best students before I went to Germany. And when I came back, I realised I shouldn't have sold him, but there you go. Because you actually need a very goey horse to be a Grand Prix horse. Anyway, I bought Porter. Uh, Fort Apache, and we decided to do a pas de deux for the Dyna Ferrari Classic, which was in Glenbrae at that stage. So we dressed up as Indians, and I designed a choreography, and I organised a smoke machine so that we could come out of the smoke as these two Indians, and we could ride this special ride. One of the moves was coming across the diagonal, and we would do a flying change at the same moment in time. Mm-hmm. So I taught Megan that we had to go one, two, three, and change. And we did it, we pulled it off and the whole audience went into huge applause, which wasn't what we expected, <laughs> but it was such a wonderful moment and it was lovely. We actually won the part of the, I mean, you don't, you don't get points, it's not important, but for my students and for me and for those two horses, it was a very precious moment. Okay, okay. All right, that sounds like a good one. I, you know, I'm just sort of trying to visualise the smoke machine and the Indians and everything else. Sounds good. <laughs> sounds good. 
those are the days you didn't have to have a crash cap on and uh, a bit more freedom of of dress at that stage. Yes, freedom of dress, that's right. That's a bit different now. All right, now doing everything there, what do you think has been your biggest challenge? Has it been the juggling family and horses? Oh, absolutely. I I have a son who was gifted in many ways and another son who was the most dear, gentle personality you could ever come across. And I had to leave them to go and train in Germany and I had to leave them every time I went to Sydney to the Nationals and I had to leave them every weekend when I wanted to go and compete, especially for two days. So I needed enormous support from family and friends in order to do that. Not everyone has that opportunity. I actually decided to teach and earn some money so I could pay for the babysitter myself because I felt a sense of guilt about asking Jeff to do that because I'd always had my own money. I'd been a secondary teacher and I didn't think, I sort of imagined I'd be a a stay-at-home mum and very satisfied with doing that. But I found I was a really good part-time mum. I actually needed my horses in order to be the person I was before. And I think that, that passion for horses and the love of the family and the love of the horses is a very difficult juggle. And I've tried having children at competitions and I went once went up to Shepparton and I'd taken the kids to the toilet, I'd given them lunch and I said, now you just stand back there behind that gate and you can stand on the gate if you want to. And there's this little voice as I'm coming down the centre line, mummy, I want to do poos <laughs> and I'm toilet training this child. <laughs> so I thought, now what do I do? Do I stop? I've come all the way to Shepparton, for goodness sake, Jill. You know, and I kept going, but my mind was half there and mm, half elsewhere. Mm. And I think that's the thing about being a mum. You can't separate from the kids, especially when you're competing. Mm-hmm. So that was a lesson to me. And then things happened, like I would be in the state championships and my son, who was the eldest, was a champion marathon kayaker. And we'd taken him to South Australia, all over the country with all these competitions. And I wasn't there for the titles of the marathon and the sprints that he did so well in. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't there when both my sons were in the nationals skiing up in New South Wales. And I felt dreadful, dreadful guilt through being selfish myself and not being there for my kids. That is a real a real heartstring puller, I've got to say. Mm, mm. And I still to this day don't know what I should have done because as a parent, you are entitled to be the person that you are. As a mother, you need to support your kids. And I'd said to myself, I normally do. I'm normally the good mother. But at that point, I really felt like I'd let them down. Mm, mm. It's something that a lot of mothers go through. You know, it's good to have the oh, the sure. family support around you because even to be able to get the support to go off to competitions, that's something that, you know, some people have and they ride as teenagers and then because they then have children without the family support, actually stop riding and um, don't start again until the kids are older, left home, you know, and you do get that. People have given up riding and had to give up horses for 20, 25 years just to bring up a family. So it was good that you had the support to be in the situation that you were. Mm. I was very lucky. Mm. I was very lucky. And I used to do things like I'd pack the children's lunches and bags and everything for kinder Mm. and I would 
have my horse on the float. I would drive to kinder. I drop off one son for kinder. This is when I only had one, sorry. Mm-hmm. And I'd zoom and have a lesson within an hour at Glenbrae, and I'd come back again, pick up my child, off I'd go. While the other mothers were sitting having cups of coffee or or going back and cooking the dinner or something, mm. I was always this woman flying around <laughs> uh, like a crazy thing. But that's the only way I could see that I could manage it. Mm. Mm. Now going on, because you're an FEI eventing judge, and you'd see a lot riding-wise, you know, what's a common fault that you see, a common problem that people might have with their horse riding or handling, and also how do they fix it? Look, I think one of the biggest problems is for people to get the right help before they go eventing and to understand that the training provides the basis for what's going to happen out there. So rather than overfacing yourself or overfacing your horse, make sure that before you've gone to a competition, you can in fact ride the movements of that test or you can in fact jump a variety of obstacles with the horse feeling confident and without you getting in front of or behind the movement and coming into fences at the right speed, being able to change the line if you need to to come over at an angle or ride a long line. And for show jumping, just to learn to get a nice rhythm, to see your stride, to leave the horse alone. Um, I think that it's the training that's the the biggest problem that I see. I think everybody out there is doing their level best to do the right thing by the horse, to do the right thing in each discipline and to achieve as much success as possible. But I think it's important that people look and say, we are a team, we're a combination I want a sound horse. I don't go if I haven't got a sound horse. I don't go if I'm not well myself because that's dangerous. I work with the best trainers that I can afford to go to and that I can find. And I make sure that my horse is really well prepared and so am I. Because the person that wins on the day is the best prepared. Yes. Oh, hang on a sec. Let me interrupt to let people know about the horse industry qualifications at onlinehorsecollege.com. If you have a look at the flexible options, there's online theory and the practical components can be completed by video or with a qualified expert in your area. That website again is onlinehorsecollege.com. Okay, thanks. All right, then now that's something to do with the actual training. What about something to complement their training like a book? Have you got a book that you could recommend for us? How many would you like? (laughs) Probably your favourite. Give us your favourite first. I think probably Writing Logic by Musler mm-hmm. yep. is, has had a huge influence on me. The German handbooks uh, tell you how to do everything properly, uh, both the, the first one and the second one, which is the advanced one. And then there's the FBI handbook, A Guideline for Dressage, which is, of course, wonderful for dressage. And there's a book called Balance in Motion that helps you to understand how you need to sit and why you need to sit that way. And Centred Riding is another one that helps you to find your sitting bones and use imagery to help your position because it's all about position Mm -hmm. in every discipline. If you are in the wrong position and you can't follow the horse's movement, the poor horse is disadvantaged like crazy. Mm. Okay, that's good. That's good. Now, what are you looking forward to at the moment, Jill? Well, I've bred a horse that I'm competing on at the moment. Mm-hmm. She's just started competing. I took her to Bonio Park and she surprised me by coming third in the prelim championship there and not jumping out the ring and not losing the plot. <laughs> so I was very thrilled. 
I took her to a competition this weekend and she did very well. She scored, I think, 70.9% or something in one test and I think 68 in the other. So, yeah, she's getting more confident and being able to concentrate more. And I keep working on my position and being careful not to overface her with movements, getting her established in her balance first before I try the next thing. She's talented in lateral movements, so I'm really lucky because that's Mm -hmm. pretty rare. And also, I'm a grandma, so I'm so lucky. I've got this gorgeous, gorgeous 20-month-old grandchild, so I juggle my commitment to my family and my riding. So I'll never, ever be an amazing rider because I'm too diverse. So I've got a husband that plays polo, and I love to go and watch him and groom all his horses so that they're Mm -hmm. the best prepared as they can be. Yep. And they get looked after really well, and everyone comes to me for a first aid if they <laughs> first aid kit if they have a problem. And um, yeah, that's a lot of fun, and it's a, a lovely group of people. Mm-hmm. My parents live next door; they're eighty-five, and I'm just so lucky to have them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and look, I'm going overseas. I'm judging in Belarus later this year, and uh, I'll be going to Argentina again towards the end of the year in October. So, look, I lead a very charmed existence. My boys say to me, I live in a happy place. Yes, yes. Yep. So, and that's where I choose to be, and I'm incredibly lucky to have that opportunity. Yeah, and to me, it's almost like you've worked out the juggle between family and horses. Well, I think it's taken a while. <laughs> it's evolved. And I think, too, the judging has evolved as well. I've been very lucky to be encouraged by people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carol Whittam from Canada was a big person who said to me, you've got a good eye, you should be eventing, do a lot of eventing judging. Mm-hmm. And in Australia, we've got a lovely judges committee and people like Jane Ventura and Susie Hubenaz and Mary Seyfried are very encouraging to come on, get your eye in, learn more, and that's a real privilege. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, can you sum up your philosophy with horses today? Ooh, that's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> yes, some, summing it up into all, one or two sentences can be, yes. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, look for a kind eye and a broad head. Mm-hmm. Love the horse in spite of the hard times. Keep yearning to improve yourself and to improve your horse. Get help whenever you need it. Don't try and be a lone island. And ego isn't the issue, just Ask for the help, give the help to others, and uh, and it's a wonderfully rewarding life. Mm. Mm, that's a battle I can <laughs> That's a pretty good sum up, I think. Jill, how can people contact you? They can ring me. They can look me up on the website, the EA website, as a B-level judge or as a uh, international judge for eventing, or on the coaches list for level two uh, coaches. And our, our property is called Brigadoon, and we have a Brigadoon Horses website as well, which isn't kept up to date very often. But <laughs> <laughs> All right, and those contact details will be on horsechats.com slash Jill Sinclair as well. Okay. Jill, thank you for talking to us. Thank you for your honesty and your openness, I think, in, in your biggest challenge of juggling family and horses. And I think it is a, a big challenge. I think it's not a challenge that you can completely master. I think you've just got to go out there and do the best you can. You do. And and you've got to learn to compromise. Oh, for sure. And in compromising, you actually become satisfied in both, but never great mm. uh, at mm. one particular thing. But I'm happy with that. Yeah, yeah. 
or it's not just juggling family and horses. Everyone else has got a, a, you know, they juggle family and a job and family and other commitments and you know it's Absolutely. it's not it's not perfect yeah, yeah we've just got to do the best no, we can it's never perfect yeah best, exactly. best we can do exactly. yeah yeah sure. all right jill well hopefully we'll talk to you again sometime soon and uh thanks very much for the chat we'll uh, talk to you later okay that's a pleasure bye if you've enjoyed this chat then please comment rate and subscribe if you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below. 